If you've got your Bibles, meet me in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We began a series last week on stewarding time. We'll pick it up next week. Uh, This week, we're going to pump the brakes, and we're just going to look at what a godly mama looks like. And I want to encourage, I want to exhort you all in this. Some of you all are right in the thick of uh, mothering right now, so this will be a word in season. Uh, Others of you, I do want to exhort and encourage you, uh, you, that season may have passed for you. Maybe you're a grandmother or grandparent right now. I I just want to speak a word uh, to you this morning and just encourage you, don't view your role as a grandparent as just spoiling kids. You know, my uh, grandparents change when, when grandbabies come on the scene. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Um, growing up, we called my daddy Grace and my mama Law. My mama didn't play. I, I, you know, I've shared with you, she didn't, you know, she, she got with you wherever you messed up. She cared to switch with her the whole nine. But once grandkids came along, she turned into a complete stranger. You know, I had to beg my mom to discipline my kids. Uh, no, I could never touch those babies. Well, you, you did something to me when I was growing up. I don't understand. Uh, it's a true story. My, 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 my parents bought this brand new house. Uh, they're just a couple days in it. And uh, my kids were real little at the time. And my middle son, Miles, took some crayon and drew on the wall. I said, this is good. Now you're going to get introduced to the real Mimi, like the one I grew up with. Didn't happen. Mom went out to Target, bought a frame, put the frame over his drawing. <laughs> Said, where was you about 20 years ago? I wish, wish I had that mama. But I want to encourage you, even as grandparents, to see your role not just as, um, as babysitters or those who may spoil, um, but to also see your role as an extension of what God wants to do in the life of that child. That God can use you as a part of that tribe to still forge and raise godly kids and grandkids, great-grandkids for the glory of God. To help us with this, I want us to go to 1 Samuel chapter 1, pick me up in verse 21, and I'll read it to you through the end of the chapter, verse 28. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah, verse 22, did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed, make a note of that, her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him with her along with a three-year-old bull an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord, As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Father, may the seed of your word fall on good ground today. In Jesus' name, amen. Story is told of a time in which a mama sent her little boy to bed. The boy climbs the stairs with his mama. Mama tucks him into the bed and kisses him goodnight. She goes back downstairs and about five minutes later, the boy cries out, 
upstairs to his mama who is downstairs. Mama, I'm thirsty. Can I have some water? To which mama responded, no. Go to sleep. Five minutes later, little boy was undeterred, was in his bed upstairs, called down to his mom who was downstairs. Mama, I'm thirsty. Can I please have some water? This time the mama said, no, no water. And if you ask me again, I'm going to come give you a spanking. Boy thought about it. He said, mama, when you come to give me a spanking, can you bring me some water? (laughs) Mama's boy, y'all go through a lot. You all go through a lot. Uh, Mothering can be one of the most thankless jobs ever. And we want to go on record as just thanking you and applauding you and appreciating you for every diaper that's been changed, every meal that's been cooked, every pickup and drop off for all that you've done. We say thank you. An older woman was reflecting on her relationship with her mom and she said, you know, when I was four, my mom was clueless. When I was eight, I was even more convinced that my mama was out to lunch, that she had no idea what was going on. When I was 16, not only was I more convinced of that, but I was just even more so convinced that that mama was old-fashioned and out of date. She said, but when I turned 25, I was going through some things in my life, some difficulties, some trials and tribulations, and at age 25, I at least stopped and had the thought, I wonder how mama would handle this. At age 35, I had more trials and tribulations, and this time, not only did I stop and have the thought, I wonder how mama would handle this, I actually picked up the phone and called mom and asked her for her advice. She says, now at 65, I wish mama was around for me to talk to. Uh, Let me just take a pit stop and even stop right here and say these words. I know that for some of you, it was an act of faith just to get you to church today, because mama is not around for you to pick up the phone and call. I want to sit with you in your pain right now. I want to encourage you. David said these words that even when mother and father forsake me, even when they're not around, the Lord will take me up. That we remember mama, we appreciate mama, we applaud mama, we are filled with wonderful memories of mama, that God sees our pain and he cares. Mama is one of the most powerful words in all of the English language. This morning, I want to pull us in and I want us to look at what a godly mom looks like in real time. I haven't chosen a didactic section of scripture that is a section of scripture that just gives principles in teaching form of what a mom looks like. I actually want us to look at a mom and how she mothers. And as we come to Hannah, one of the things that we understand right off the bat is that Hannah is a great and godly mom. How do we know this about Hannah? How do we know that Hannah is a great and godly mom? Well, we understand that she's a great and godly mom because of the results of how her kids turned out. That just as maybe you wake up one day, if you're like me, and you go, man, I've put on a little weight, and I, I want to get toned and lean, and I I, I want to just, you know, uh, just kind of get into shape. I need to find a trainer, just as we would go, man, if I'm going to hire a trainer, I need to know that that trainer is buying what they're selling. I, I, I want to know that there's some results that that trainer is exemplifying. So it is when we think about 
what older people, what mamas we would want to look to for advice. And so we look to Hannah for advice, not theoretically, but we look to her for advice because of the way in which her boy turned out. I want us to begin with the end. I want us to look at, and I've got it on the screen for you, 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is Samuel, who in our text is a little boy. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 12, he's, he's at his retirement dinner. He's retiring as the last judge of Israel. And he's reflecting back over his life and how he led the people of God. And listen to what he says. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. Listen. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. So when I retire from abundant life, I want to be able to say this. Whose ox have I taken? Well, I won't be able to say that. Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with? Testify against me and I'll restore it to you. They said, you haven't defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to him, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. You know what Samuel's saying? All these years I've lived before you. I've walked before you in godly integrity. And the seeds for that godly integrity, 1 Samuel chapter 1 implies, were sown at his mother's knee. That we can go to Hannah as an example of what a godly mom looks like because we see the fruit of her mothering. Now let me just stop right here. It's important for me to understand, for, for, for me to say these words to you. Uh, my, my father once said them to me, and it just, he just kind of remarked flippantly. He was you know, talking about one of his friends who um, had done everything that he could as a father with his child, but that child was just going through a rough season. And, and I'll never forget what my dad says. He goes, you know what? We parents tend to take too much credit when our kids turn out right and too much blame when they don't. I want to give that to you again. Parents tend to take too much credit when their kids turn out right. So we need to understand the grace of God. If you look back over your life, you didn't dot every I, you didn't cross every T, uh, you, you did things inappropriately, but God's grace filled in the blanks. But not only do we take too much credit when they turn out right, oftentimes we take too much blame when they don't. That we cannot, we cannot allow our sense of self-esteem to rise and fall on the performance or lack thereof of our kids. If that was the case, God needs to be laying on some psychologist's couch every day. Because he's got some messed up kids. And yet we, we, we peel back and we, we say, Hannah was used in concert to what God wanted to get done in Samuel's life. And there's some principles I think we can glean. Before I get into these three principles, let me give us a bit of hope. The first thing I want to say to you as it relates to hope is that please don't misunderstand. Godly kids are not made in perfect environments. Godly kids 
are not made in perfect environments or perfect homes. I want to exhort you, read 1 Samuel chapter 1 at some point, and what you'll discover is it's a messed up house. Hannah's married to a man named Elkanah. Elkanah in Hebrew, his name means possessed by God. So what we understand here is Elkanah is a godly man. It's not just what his name means. I'll talk about that some in just a few moments, but the way he lives is godly, but he's made some very poor choices. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we see that Hannah is the first mentioned among two wives. We see a problem here. And that Hannah is the first mentioned tells us that she was the first wife of Elkanah. Well, the reason why Elkanah chooses to marry another woman is because we understand that Hannah cannot have kids. She's battling infertility. She's got a barren womb. And there's pain there. Let me just draw another parenthesis and let me say that there's another group of mothers who came in today and it was an act of God for you to get here Because even though your mom may still be around, Mother's Day is a painful reminder that you've tried really hard to have kids and it just hadn't happened yet. I'm going to sit with you in that pain right now and I want to acknowledge it. I'm not going to give you any kind of a prophetic word. I don't feel, you know, led by the Spirit of God to do that. But let me just remind you that the same God who saw Hannah's predicament who heard her tears, who cared about Hannah and her struggles with infertility and Sarah's struggle with infertility and Elizabeth's struggle with infertility is the same God who sees your struggle. And not only does he see it, he cares. Jesus says there's not a single hair that falls to the ground that your father does not know, see, or care about. God knows, and God sees, and God cares. And would you remind yourself with this truth that my circumstances are never a commentary on the goodness of God. God is good even if you had 10 kids. God is good even as we struggle going back and forth from doctors. God sees, he hears, and he cares. This is a messed up home. It's a polygamous home. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm sure nobody's thinking it. Let me just go ahead and fire a shot. This text is not given to us for us to rubber stamp any kind of false assumption that God is okay with, uh, with a man having um, multiple wives or that God is okay with, ha- with a man having a wife and another woman on the side. He's not okay with that. In fact, if you want to know God's ideal for marriage, go to Genesis chapter 2 when God pronounces over the first uh, marriage that a man shall leave his uh, father and his mother and cling to his wife wife and the two, the two, the two shall become one flesh. Not the three, not the five, not the seven, the two. So what we have here is there's a unique period in history in which God allowed polygamy, but that was never his ideal. In fact, if you see any situation in the scriptures in which men step outside of that, even so-called godly men, it always comes with the biggest headaches. Every time I read Abram and Sarai struggling with trying to have a kid and Sarai says, well, this ain't working. Why don't you just take my my girl Hagar and have a kid with her? Every time I read, I'm going, no, 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 don't fall for it. Abram, it's a Jedi mind trick. 
And sure enough, he does it, and envy and jealousy come about, and all this stuff happens, and we see this home just kind of implode. Jacob marries Rachel and Leah, and there's envy and jealousy there, and all that David goes through with Abigail and Michael, so on and so forth. This is not God's ideal. This is an imperfect home. And yet out of this dysfunctional, imperfect home, a godly boy is raised and released into society who would lead the people of God and would be used of God greatly. And the lesson is this. God is not handcuffed by our dysfunction. God still specializes in hitting straight licks with crooked sticks. And so when you look at your own home and you're going, man, I got a single parent situation or I've got a blended family situation or I'm on my second marriage or my third marriage. These things may not be God's ideals, but here's what I'm telling you. God is not handcuffed by our dysfunction. God does what he wants to do and he wants to do it in concert with us. And sometimes he does it in spite of us. Samuel is, grown, is, is weaned in an imperfect environment and yet released as a godly man in society. It's good news for all of us because ain't none of our homes perfect. My parents in two weeks are going to celebrate their 45th wedding anniversary. And I, I bless God for them, praise God for them, godly people who, who introduced me to Jesus Christ. But they weren't perfect people. Growing up, my dad was gone 200 days out of the year. I miss my dad. He'd be going weeks at a time preaching the gospel. And I remember one time, man, I, I remember getting really mad at, at my dad because he's gone. And I'm about eight years old at the time. The grass needed to be cut. I'm too young to cut it. And here's my mom, little inner city girl from Philadelphia, having to crank up the lawnmower, bawling her eyes out as she's cutting the grass, man. And there's, there's some pain and there's some dysfunction and a whole lot of other stuff that happened in my home. And I'm not going to put the business out on Front Street. But at the end of the day, me and my siblings now are all serving Jesus, all walking with Jesus. God use my parents, but he also sidestepped some of the dysfunction, protected us, and still released us. So I'm not saying wallow in your dysfunction. I'm just saying we serve a God who can make up the difference. Now to the principles. What do we learn about godly moms here? First principle I would share with you is this. If you want godly kids, be a godly person. Hear me. Most of parenting is caught and not taught. Or to say it another way, mothers, you can teach what you know, but you will ultimately reproduce who you are. Going too fast. Most of parenting is caught, not taught. Mamas, you can teach what you know, but ultimately you will reproduce who you are. So if you want godly kids, it's not just about having devos with them. It's not just about spending time with them. If you want godly kids, it's about making sure you are living the very destination you want your kids to arrive at. 
I came home the other night, man, just dog tired. And my wife, she, she got out of the bed and she said, you won't, you won't believe this. And she showed me Jaden's Bible. Jaden's my 11 year old man. And, and, and he's got this Bible and it's, he's marking it up and he's taking notes. She goes, I walked in, he had fallen asleep, this Bible on his chest. He's marking up, making all these notes and everything. And she says right beside him, she showed me his journal. I didn't even know the kid had a prayer journal, prayer journal where he's just making these prayers out to God, man. His tears just flooded my eyes. 11 year old kid, parenthesis, don't deify him. That same kid later on punched his brother in the nose. So he's got a sin nature. But what I want you to see, I'm just going, where did he get that from? Here's where he gets that from. If you came to our apartment, his mom, for about a couple hours every single morning, has her Bible, reading her word, marking up her word, has her prayer journal. We didn't give him a Devo 101 lesson. He saw it and now is incarnating it. So mama's, one of the best things you can hand to your kids is simply modeling the very destination you want them to journey to. So here's Hannah. We know that she's a godly woman. We know she's a woman of godly character, among other things. Hannah, her name means full of grace. Here's Hannah. She's living in grace and she's walking in grace and she's embodying this grace. And look at what happens to her child. First Samuel 2 26. Look at it with me on the screen. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor. The Hebrew word there for favor simply means grace. So 1 Samuel 2.26 says Samuel is growing in grace. Watch this now. But his mama's name means grace. And when they named you in those days, they don't, they didn't name you like they name you now. You're not, now we name people because it sounds cool or it's a unique kind of a thing. My sister's an OBGYN. She called me uh, about two years ago and she said one of her colleagues just delivered a set a twin's true story and the first twin comes out right before midnight the other twin comes out right after midnight and uh, this mom hadn't given any thought to what she'd name him true story you're gonna think i'm lying but my sister told it to me she said when the mom was pressed for a name she decided to name the baby who was born right before midnight today and the baby that was born right after midnight tomorrow my people not how it was back then. You named your kids and what you named them was an anticipated forecast of what you wanted them to be. So names were pronouncements of character. So Hannah is named full of grace because her parents wanted her to live into that reality. Hannah lives into that reality. So when this other wife is cranking out kids, making fun of Hannah, she's gracious to her. She's walking in grace. And what do we see in 1 Samuel chapter 2? We see her boy growing in grace. So that her boy is emulating the very character traits of his mama. In psychological speak, it means this. Psychologists tell us the traits of the parents become the tendencies of the kids. So that Hannah looks, excuse me, Samuel looks like his mother. He's growing in character. If you want godly kids, be a godly person. 
I thought about my mom just the other day. I'm walking down 42nd Street there in, uh, in Manhattan, uh, 42nd, making my way to, to 5th. And um, you, you need to understand, my, my mama is from Philly. She's a Philly girl. She's from the hood. Um, she grew up rough. She grew up in the projects for a while. She was homeless. Um, and if you know anything about my mom, my mom has the biggest heart for the, for the least of these, for the poor. I grew up, my best friend uh, is the oldest, I think cumulative, there's 16 kids. He grew up in the projects. My mom had a heart for him and uh, he ended up living with us for a while. She was always taking people in. We always left an extra plate out on the table for people because mama never forgot from where she came. She started a ministry with another woman to help minister to battered women. It's just who she is. My mom would give you the shirt off her back. And here I am just the other day, I'm 43 years old, walking down 42nd and I see a woman uh, begging She's got a little cardboard sign begging for food. And I got two thoughts. I'm one of the Holy Spirit speaking to me. Uh, you know, I need to do something about that. But, but I got also a picture of my mama. And I'm just going, if Karen Loritz saw her, she would do something. Here I am, 43 years later, mama is still marking me. I've seen it. I saw how she lived. The traits of the parents are becoming the tendencies of the children. Secondly, second trait here is not only if you want godly kids, be a godly person, but secondly, if you want godly kids, be intentional. Be intentional. Why is this important? Proverbs 29, 15 tells us, look at it with me. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to its mother. A child with no sense of a roadmap, no sense of a game plan, just left to himself, no sense of proactive, intentional parenting, that child has a sin nature left to himself. If nothing intentional happens, if God's grace does not step in, that child is headed for destructive patterns of behavior. It's the default. Now here's what irritates me. What irritates me is I'm seeing a lot of parents in my generation and younger generations who are more intentional and proactive with their kids when it comes to their academics, their schooling, their hobbies, their activities, their sports. They will invest and invest and invest and invest and invest. They'll go to the games. They'll act crazy. They'll, they'll do all this stuff. They'll spend hour upon hour, dollar upon dollar. And then when it comes to training kids in righteousness and godliness, at the best, they'll outsource their kids to the youth leader. Let me just, let me just give you my philosophy of youth ministry here at the church. We're going to hire a youth director. I just want you to understand. But when we have that youth director, that youth director is not that kid's surrogate father. That youth director is a supplement in helping you disciple the child. It's a supplement. So I just want you to understand if all of a sudden your kids, it's, it's just, you know, I told my, my, my church in Memphis this one time, it's a very affluent church, man. All these wealthy people were coming to our church and 
I, I know they only do this in Memphis. I, I noticed that they at most would come to, parents would at most come to church about twice a month. And, you know, the other two Sundays they're at their lake house, man. They're at the beach or whatever like that. I'm not saying you can't enjoy, but they were just coming once, twice a month or whatever. I said, just listen, I say this to you in love. If you're only coming to church with your family once or twice a month, do not wail and moan 20 years later as to why your kid doesn't go to church and make church a priority. They got it from you. This is what you're handing them. So if you want godly kids, godly kids, for the most part, don't happen by osmosis. You've got to be proactive. You've got to be intentional. And Hannah has an intentional plan. Here it is. This is, this is key. Here's her plan. Verse 22. Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Into verse 23. So the woman remained and nursed, nursed, nursed her son until she weaned him. So Hannah says to her husband, I'm not going to the temple to worship. I'm going to stay here with my boy. Just had my boy, but I've got a plan. Here's my plan. I'm going to begin by nursing him. The idea of nurse means to pour into, to develop. She says, I'm going to give him essential nutrients and ingredients to grow him up. I'm going to nurse him, but I ain't going to nurse him forever. I'm going to nurse him until he's weaned. The Hebrew word for weaned means to bring to a point or a place of maturity. To bring to a place. It literally means to ripen. She says, I'm going to nurse, but I ain't going to nurse forever. Just like in the natural, we would go, that child is 10 years old and it's still being nursed. That's weird. Hannah says, I'm going to nurse for a season and I'm going to end that season when that child is mature so that hear it now, Hannah sees her mothering in seasons. There is a season to nurse and there is a season to let go. There is a season to nurse and there is a season to wean. Now let me work on this. Where adult kids get sideways with their mamas and their daddies is when mamas and daddies still try to nurse, but they're 25, 35 years old. So when mamas and daddies still try to give unsolicited, passive, aggressive advice. Now, let me just stop right here. Adult kids, let me say this to you. If you want your parents to treat you like you've grown, then act like you've grown. Is, is this microphone on? Is this? <laughs> Hear me, adult kids. You can't go to mom and daddy and ask for money and then get upset when they treat you like a kid. Are you sure, LaRue, is this thing on? <laughs> you can't have it both ways. You can't come to your parents to get nursed and then tell them to leave you alone and get upset at them for not treating you like an adult. But on the other hand, mama, there comes a point where you must let go. And one of the problems that we are having in our society today, it is a plague. It is an epidemic that is killing the church. And I'm going to unleash an assault on it. It is called extended adolescence. 
Let me give you this definition. I get it from sociologists. Adolescence, here it is, is wanting the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. Adolescence is wanting the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. And because of that, sociologists tell us adolescence has extended to age 35. I'm not being funny. It's truth. I meet these boys trapped in a man's body all the time. They sit around their mama and daddy's house, 20-something, 30-something years old, no sense of ambition, no sense of get after itness to them, sitting on their mom and daddy's sofa, eating their mom and daddy's snacks and food. Their biggest ambition in life is how to crack the top 100 in Call of Duty video games. This is how they roll. And it's a specific epidemic, not so among adult girls, but it really thrives under adult males. I'm not even going to call them men. Males trapped in a boy's body. Well, boys trapped in a man's body. It's an epidemic. I remember one time, man, I was meeting with this guy um, at our church, uh, my, my church in Memphis, and it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and he, he wanted to drop by. He had some questions about Calvinism, Reformed theology, and he was trying to talk to me, engage me on the superlapsarian versus the infralapsarian controversy. Those are actual terms. And so we're talking to him, and he's wanting to get into the nuances of limited atonement and how could Jesus, having died for the sins of the world, his, sin, uh, his death is only efficacious towards those who are the elect. And we're having this wonderful conversation. And then about 30 minutes into just kind of theologizing, I I go, it's two something in the afternoon. Why are you here? Why aren't you at work? He goes, I don't really have a job. Really? Are you looking for it? No, I'm not really looking for one. I said, really? Where are you living? I live with my mom. I said, do you have a car? No, I don't have a car. I said, this conversation's over. I ain't talking to you about limited atonement and you ain't got a job. This is first things first. Don't call me talking about Calvin. Don't call me talking about when Jesus is coming uh, back. If when he comes back, not only are you unemployed, but you ain't looking. <laughs> this is an epidemic. Now, 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 parents, here's what I want you to see. In most cases, parents are an accomplice to the crime. Here's how you create that. Passive dads. Coddling moms. Who hold and nurse and nurse and nurse and nurse and nurse and nurse and won't let go. You know how eagles teach their young how to fly? That eagle wakes up one day and says, you too big. Sitting up in this nest. Get on my back. They take off. And mama flicks it off. That eagle goes barreling down. Mama at the last minute swoops it up. We're going to try it again. They try it again and try it again and try it again until that eagle flies. But that thing doesn't fly until it first gets flicked. Mamas, at some point, you got to flick your child. Now, l- let me just say this. My dad did that exceptionally well, um, but I picked up real quick. There's two boys, two girls in a household. There's a whole different ball game for girls. I understand that. But still, at the end of the day, you can't nurse that child forever. Hannah says, I've got a plan. I'm going to nurse 
and then I'm going to wean. Let's go home on this one. Hannah's a godly mom, and we know this because if you want godly kids, be a godly person. She's a godly person. You can teach what you know. You can't. Rep- you can. You will ultimately reproduce who you are. Secondly, if you want godly kids, you must be intentional. Thirdly, Hannah understands if you want godly kids, don't be their savior. Verse twenty-five. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, "Oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to Him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. Here is, if you know Hannah, her story is: I've prayed and I've wrestled with this barren womb and infertility and being laughed at for years, and I've sought the Lord and I've sought the Lord and sought the Lord. Finally, the Lord." here's my prayer. I get pregnant. Boom. Here the baby is. If it's me, I'm going to hold on extra tight. It's not what Hannah does. She says, God, you've blessed me. I'm going to your house. This child is weaned and I'm going to let that child go. And in letting that child go, she's making some profound statements. I think one of the first things she's saying is that child is not my identity. I need you parents to hear that. Your child is not your identity. Second thing, when she lets that child go, she's making a profound statement that this child is not my God. This child is not my savior. In Genesis chapter 22, Isaac is born. Finally, same situation, years of a barren womb, years of struggle. And God says, you know what? I'm going to test Abraham. Not because I don't know the information. I just want him to know what's really in his heart. So here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to take this child of promise, this thing you prayed for forever. I want you to kill it because I want you to know whether or not that kid is your idol or your savior. I see adult parents... And adult kids having train wrecks of a relationship. And yes, I know it's very nuanced, but I think a part of the problem is, is mama doesn't know how to let go. So I see it all the time. Little passive aggressive comments. You coming home for Christmas? I sure hadn't seen you in the last couple Christmases. In competition, mama is with the wife, as if mama is still trying to be the number one woman in that child's life. Come, babysit the kids. Passive-aggressive remarks about how the house is being handled. When I got married, my mama did for me the best thing she's ever done for me in my life. 17 years ago, the night before I got married, here we are at the rehearsal dinner. She gets up. She gets the mic. I'm going, oh, Lord, what is she fitting to say? She said, this is my first child. I'm having a hard time with this. First one to get married. When Brian was a little boy, he used to follow me around. used to hold on to my apron. She goes, in this vase, Corey, I want you to understand, you're now the number one woman in his life, and I've cut up the apron strings. So this vase is filled with cut up apron strings, which means I'm not number one. You are. Now, over the years... Over the years, I've had to remind mama that. 
I remember one time we had, I just bought my first house and I bought a big screen TV and she mumbled under her breath that she's at my house in Charlotte, North Carolina. How'd you get all the money for this? I said, Corey, go, go bring me that vase. <laughs> Mama, you have to cut the apron strings. This is what Hannah does. She says, God, you've blessed me with this child. This child is not my identity. This child's not my savior. I release him. Back to you. As we close, I'm reminded that whenever God does anything significant in human history, it's normally symbolized by the birth of a baby. When God is forming his people, the nation of Israel, he comes to Abraham and makes with him a covenant. And he, he ratifies that covenant when a little baby named Isaac is born. A little while later in Exodus, when God says, I'm going to do something new in world history. And I'm going to release my people from bondage to the Egyptians. I'm going to mark it with the birth of a baby. His name is Moses. In our text, it's really the transition in which God is transitioning his people from a theocratic form of government to a monarchy which will be led by kings. And Samuel is the last leader under the theocracy. And God in transitioning that signifies that with the birth of a baby, Samuel. And when God wanted to bring salvation to the whole world, he symbolizes it with the birth of another baby, his son, Jesus. And it would be this son that he would make available to the whole world. That just like Hannah gave up her only child at the time and released him. God, out of great love for you, gave up his only child and released him to you. That's love. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Wow. I got three boys abundant life and I love y'all dearly. I don't love you that much to give one of them up. God had one son. Just like Hannah at the time had one son. And God loved you that much that he gave up his only son. How do we respond to the word of God? I want to make a couple of calls to you today. If you're here and you're going, I don't know Jesus. I don't have this baby Jesus in my heart who would live the life I could never have lived and died the death I should have died. I want to get to know Jesus for the first time. I want that son in my life. I offer that Jesus to you. Some of you may just want to rededicate your life today. Maybe you are saying, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm not walking in godliness today. And I want someone to pray with me and to talk with me. And I just, I just feel like God is calling me right now to just rededicate my heart and life. I want to make that call. But the third and probably the most unique call I'll make is maybe you're a parent here today. Maybe you're a mama who's here today. And you're going, Pastor, I don't want to get into all the nuances of it. I don't want to get all, uh, all into the X's and O's of it. But would you pray for my child? 
would you pray for me? That God would strengthen me and, and how I mother and parent that child. We're making three calls, one for salvation, one for rededication, and one for any parent who maybe after hearing this word, you're going, I, I could use some prayer along these lines. That God would strengthen me to be that kind of parent who leads in that kind of way. As the Spirit of God moves, we want to invite you to come. You could be up in the balcony. We could, you could be on the floor. But would you respond as God speaks? Father, in the name of Jesus, save someone's soul today. In the name of Jesus, Lord God, bring some lost and wayward sheep back into the fold. Father, in some way, strengthen some parent out there today. Give them what they need in this season of parenting or grandparenting, that they might be all that you've called them to be, the balance of their days and the life of that child or grandchild. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.